We're continuing our series today from the book of Isaiah. And maybe uh, you've had the chance to just read through the book of Isaiah, in particular uh, chapters 40 through to 66. The prayer that we just prayed together, that we read out, um, that's God's Word. And last week we were reminded that what God says, He does. What God says, He does. We begin today in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And as part of this passage, it contains a quote from Isaiah. The passages that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, In Matthew 12, Jesus is encountering pressure from the religious leaders, religious people who are trying to trap him, who are trying to discredit him, who are trying to find a reason to bring him to court and to judgment. And verse 14 of Matthew 12 marks a turning point where the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. So we're going to read from verse 15 in Matthew 12. It says, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he has brought justice through victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that we afresh in our hearts would put our hope in your name. The name of Jesus. We thank you. Help us to have ears to hear. May the Holy Spirit touch our hearts this morning. May we wrestle with your word and Lord, may we uh, glimpse you again in a fresh and a new way. And everybody said, Amen. So these Easter messages are coming primarily from Isaiah 40 to 66. Um, Just recapping what this passage, what this book is doing... The historical picture is Israel's saving or salvation from their exile or suffering in Babylon. And the readers in that day would have seen a future picture. They would have seen the mission of Israel to reveal Yahweh, that is salvation, to all peoples, those who are suffering. But for us, there's a third picture, and that is the mission of the ecclesia, that is us, the church, the body of Christ, the called out ones to witness salvation to a suffering world. So whilst Isaiah 40 to 66, you would never say contains any sort of systematic theology, much of the heavyweight information that's contained in this amazing book is very theological. Uh, You could say the New Testament equivalent might be Romans. Through Isaiah, we learn about the sovereignty of God. God is redeemer and holy. God is only. God is creator, universal. God's activity in history, the word of God, 
the foolishness of idolatry, the restoration from exile, comfort, forgiveness, judgment, salvation, the servant motif, exaltation of the weak. That means those who realise their inability to save themselves. It's okay to be weak because he is strong. We cannot save ourselves. And then finally, the eschatological expectation. What is it with Christians and E-words? Eschatology is two Greek words, simply last and study. In other words, the study of last things, the study of end things, whether it be individual life, whether it be the present age, but most importantly, the nature of the kingdom of God itself. When we think about eschatology in a Christian sense, we we have these sorts of words, death and the afterlife. What happens? Heaven and hell, the second coming of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the rapture, tribulation and judgment, millennialism, pre, post, a, and the millennium falcon. That's a fourth category. The new heaven and new earth. These eschatological expectations create brilliant late-night coffee sessions for lots of people. But for us, it's hope. Hope. Eschatological expectation is hope. Forward-looking, forward-moving. And because of the hope, it affects our present. It is a revolutionising and transforming effect that it has on our present, here and now. So when Isaiah received these words from the Lord and, and, and placed them and allowed them to be read to the people, something of the eschatological hope that was contained in this passage affected the people in their present. Isn't that the work of hope? Isn't that what hope does? Hope is a powerful work in our lives. Hope transforms us. My peace today is based on my peace in Jesus. The peace I have in Christ is an assurance of eternal life. I have peace right now because of that. In fact, if Corona should take me, it is well with my soul. I trust the Lord that he will take care of my family. At the end of the day, they're not mine to possess. They belong to God. I am very content. That's eschatological hope. The power of Christ at work in me today, the same power that rose Christ from the dead, is my hope of future resurrection. Hope changes us. Hope is comforting. Comfort comes from hope. There is a comfort that that we can feel through hope. And when hope is expressed as words and as actions, it, it creates imagination. It creates possibilities. It does something to our heart and our mind. There is a future. There is a possibility. There is a way out. What are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? What are you waiting upon God for? What is your hope? I want to look at three aspects of hope, but I want to specifically focus on comfort, the role of comfort in the hope that we have in God. Um, This is a picture of me uh, last week. (laughs) And I forgot about 
this dog that I had. That dog gave me a lot of comfort. Now, either mum added brandy to my last glass of milk, if you look at my eyes, or I'm actually really hugging that dog. There is a, a comfort transaction taking place. There is a hope and a peace that the night will be fine and I will wake up okay and that dog is with me. There's this physical connection, this very real transaction that is taking place. This is the main chapel in Velo, Christian Medical Centre. And uh, when I was there a couple of years ago with Josh, uh, we were there to conduct a service. Now, the service there was a a chapel's service, and as we uh, waited, people just kept coming and coming. Uh, Some of those folk were staff, wanting to catch a church service. Some of those folk were family members and friends of people who were sick and ill. They were coming into a place of hope. They were coming into a place where where they could be comforted, where they could experience the comfort of the Word of God, a very present and real comfort in their lives as they gathered in this service. It was a very, I just remember it was a very tender time. Tender. Tender. And finally... Who here enjoys comfort food? Is there anything better than a nice, warm cheese sandwich with egg and whatever else they put in there? And it's just cooked to perfection. And it's just like, oh, is anyone else just thinking about that for lunch now? Comfort food. There's something that happens when it doesn't matter how you're feeling or what's happened when you when you're just there in that space and maybe with someone else, maybe sitting on your favourite couch near someone, near someone, and, and you're just consuming that beautiful cheese toasting, there's this comfort. What is it about comfort that does something to us? What is it about comfort that affects us? The first action of hope is comfort. And in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 1 to 2, The Word talks about this comfort. Can we just turn there, please? Isaiah 40, in verses 1 to 2. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. You know, when you're going through a tough time, how beautiful is it when someone speaks tenderly to you? When you're in a place where you're really lacking hope, when you're in a place where you can't see a way out, it seems almost impossible, when you're out of strength, when, you're, when you've come to the end of yourself, how beautiful is it when someone comes and comforts you and speaks to you tenderly? This word comfort has, has a, a meaning of a sigh, like a You know when you just hop into a spa, hot tub, after a hard day, and you've got a cheese sandwich in one hand, <laughs> and the cricket in the other, TV, and you're sitting there, and <sighs> that's what this word comfort means. It means to have a favourable sense of pity, to console. What's interesting about this word is its connection to repentance. 
When this particular word is used in Scripture and it's translated, 40% of the time, this word comfort is translated as repentance. The 60% of the time, it's translated as directly as comfort. In other words, there's a, there's a connection between repentance and comfort. When hope comes into our heart, when we are feeling hopeless and hope invades us and impacts us, the repentance aspect is realising that I can't do it myself, I need someone else. I'm going to stop focusing on the problem and I'm going to turn and I'm going to start focusing on hope. Do you see that? There's a connection between repentance and hope. When we choose to hope in Jesus, when we choose to have an eschatological hope of the saving power of Christ, we are turning our back on everything else that we see and feel and we're choosing to believe in the promises of God. This is a powerful beginning to a people who seemingly have been abandoned and are feeling hopeless. You see, when we surrender to God, when we turn to Him, that is the opportunity for us to imagine something else. That is the hope of God, true comfort. There are many passages of Scripture, I won't read them out, Isaiah 49.13, Isaiah 52.9, Isaiah 57.18, Isaiah 66.13. These capture the idea of comfort. In fact, in Isaiah 66, thinking of Laura right now, God uh, tries to paint a picture of what his comfort looks like. It's like. It's like a mother with a newborn child. Isn't that beautiful? God's comfort for you and me is like a mother would be with a newborn child. How beautiful. How beautiful. The second aspect of, of these comforting and these, these tender words is, is that God is present. God is with. God is physical. God is personal. What is The way the Scripture speaks, it's a very tangible uh, expressive language. Uh, in Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, it, it gives tangible ideas of roads being built through desert places. Uh, it's not easy building roads. Uh, can you tell with all the roadworks in Adelaide? Yeah. It takes a lot of effort. Imagine building a road through the middle of the desert. How much effort? Ma- imagine you know, dropping all the hills and lifting all the valleys so that the road is straight. I mean, the desert, the foundation, how far down do you have to go to build a road? This is the language of the Scripture. This is the comfort of God that that what seems hard and impossible, God's going to make easy. What seems like there is no way through or no way out, God is going to come and do something. He's going to make the rugged into plains. And God continues this personal perspective by talking about a mighty arm. Just, just put your arm out, just feel your own muscle. How, how mighty do you feel? Mighty-ish? Mighty a little bit? Some of you haven't even moved. You can, you can touch your own arm, there's no corona issues, okay? And I haven't asked you to raise your hand, have I? So I'm, I'm a step down this morning. Imagine God coming in saying, with my arm, my strength... I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this with my arm, my strength. God uses the idea that he is a shepherd. And a shepherd takes care of his sheep. This is a personal 
personal and, and physical and very present. Regardless of our age, whether we're young or old, God says that, that we will run again. We will walk again. We will soar again. How can you not hear these words and be inspired with hope? I think it's really important that we recognise what this passage of Scripture uh, is doing in the lives of the people who are hearing it. There's a picture here at the end of World War II, an American general and the emperor of Japan. And they're standing there having a photo taken and it's peace. It's the end of the war. You see, part of comfort is truth. Part of receiving the comfort of God is knowing the truth. When Japan surrendered, the truth was very apparent through two atomic bombs. How could they withstand such might and such power? The truth was that the war was over long before. But right now, the truth is it's definitely done. It is fruitless. It is stupid. It is insane to continue fighting. So the people who are receiving this word from Isaiah to be comforted, these are people who have realized the truth, that there is no hope, there is no way out. In fact, the only option is total surrender. The only time that comfort came to this nation of Japan was when they totally surrendered. No conditions. Total surrender. And so part of comfort is knowing the truth. And God speaks about himself, comparing himself. Uh, in Isaiah 40, 6 to 9, 12 to 20, 21 to 6, he, he compares himself to idols. You have people making idols. How does a man-made idol who's hammered down with a nail so it won't fall, how does that compare to me? What have those idols done for you? How's it working out for you? How's your decisions gone for you? Part of comfort is truth. Realising that there's nothing else that I can do. I've come to the end. Total surrender. God compares himself to us like we're flowers. Flowers that will eventually fall to the ground. He compares the people of the earth like, like grasshoppers, like grass. What are we compared to God? I think in our culture, in our day and age, as a, as a white, educated male who, who works in Burnside in Australia, sometimes I forget that I'm actually only that big. Like not even on that when I compare myself to God. God continues this truth. The comfort that comes from God's word is part of a reality check that God gives. God speaks several times about idols. Can they predict the future like I have? Will they tell you what to do? Will they tell you what's about to happen like I have and I will? This reality check goes even crazier and it starts painting pictures of water coming out of nowhere. Where there was a barren place, a waterless place, God will bring water. Where there's a desert, God will turn that into water instead. 
God is giving a reality check that your situation that you're in, it's barren, it's dusty, it's hopeless, yet I can change it and I will. In fact, God goes a step further and he starts talking about trees. He starts talking about trees in the desert. In verse 19, he gives these different trees that don't grow in the desert. And he's just talking about, I will plant these trees. I just want you to have a listen to this. I want you to imagine that you are sitting as a slave, that, that there's no hope, there's no future, and this word comes to you painting a picture of these trees. I have a brother-in-law who's in America. You know, one of the things that he says he misses about Australia is the gum tree. The gum tree. Listen, listen to these trees. God says that he'll plant the juniper tree. You know what a juniper tree is? It's a very slow-growing plant that just grows a few centimetres a year, but it never stops growing. Its wood is used for cladding. Uh, its berries are made for spices and making wine. You know, with all of the craft beers and wine that sector, they would love a juniper tree right now. Do you know that the juniper berry is a source of calcium? Now, the people hearing this would have known this. That was what they did with the juniper tree. The acacia tree, a very fast-growing tree with water. Well, God in Isaiah 41, 17, 18 has just spoken about what he's going to do with water. So the acacia tree, the seeds can be eaten. The gum can be used to sweeten foods. The gum can be used in paint. The Egyptians used the gum from the acacia tree to paint things. It's also used as incense. And as soon as I said acacia, some of you would have gone, ah, that was the wood that was used to make the ark. What is God doing here? Some suggested that the crown of thorns might have been an acacia bush. Do you know that the acacia wood is not necessarily good for building, but the pulp is often used for making books with very thin pages, dictionaries, Bibles. The myrtle tree produces a fruit that makes drinks and is like a pepper, a spice. Um, the myrtle tree uh, is also used as a type of aspirin aches and fevers, you would get some myrtle medicine and it would help to relieve your fevers and your aches and your pains. It was also used in weddings. It's one of the four type of leaves that are used in the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a celebration that the Israelites used to remember at the end of harvest. What is God doing here by listing these trees? He's creating a picture in their minds. He's, he's creating a, a memory. He's saying, listen, what you have lost, it seems impossible, but I want to tell you that I'm going to do something and I'm going to do something like you've never seen before. And this hope begins to take root in people's lives and, and they begin to imagine what God said. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. The cypress tree... Some of these trees live for a thousand years, very durable wood. Some of its wood, in fact, is used in the Vatican, which is currently closed. It was also wood used for Noah's Ark, the wood that saved. Furs, they're used everywhere across the world. The resin in furs is, is very hardy. 
They, they, they can use this resin for all sorts of industrial a- applications. Olive tree. I love olives. I love olive oil. I, I just love olives. And I love olive oil. Have I said that already? Yeah. <laughs> olive trees can grow anywhere and everywhere. Seven trees were mentioned here. Oh, seven. Isn't that the number of complete? Is God going to bring back complete restoration? These are pictures, images that are coming to a people where there's no hope. Yet God is essentially saying, I'm going to terraform your environment. I'm going to do something new. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come in and change what you're facing. This, this is an encouragement. But it's also important to remember our calling. You see, Israel had a calling upon God. Their calling was to, was to reflect God to the nations, was to be used as a nation that would, that would have it so good and so well that they would be able to show God to the entire world. Imagine if you're captured and trapped and being taken over and conquered. How does your calling work then? Well, God says uh, in, in, in uh, Isaiah 41, 8 and 9, But Israel, my servant, Jacob, who I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you, f- uh, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. You are my servant. I have chosen you. And not rejected you. This is just words of hope. This is words of comfort. When you feel like there is nothing there for you, God comes in and says, Hey, remember I've called you. I haven't rejected you. It's not over. It's not done. The third action of comfort is real help. This is a picture of the floods in Jakarta that happen at the start of the year. Imagine being flooded. Who has been flooded before? Anyone? It's not much fun. I hate that smell. You know that damp carpet sort of smell that comes and the mud? It just stinks. Uh, Comfort in words is one thing, but these people needed comfort. They needed help. Comfort. Uh, what about these folk at the bushfires on the eastern seaboard? Um, these people are being evacuated. They, they needed help. Yes, they were comforted. Yes, they were provided with some bits and pieces. Yes, they, they were encouraged with words, but they actually needed help. What about these Syrian Christians who, who have no hope where they are and they're holding a box from the Bible Society? These people need help. Real people where the comfort of the Lord is needed but one of the aspects of comfort is real help. And this real help came in the person of Jesus. And so the third action of comfort is that we needed help. We needed a servant. Isaiah 41, 10 to 14, speak of a servant. And then Isaiah 42, uh, speak directly about this servant who would come. Now the interesting thing about the servant is that Israel and Judah were the servant. They were the chosen one. And so what Jesus did was he came up through that servant, Israel. 
to become the servant for us. Jesus fulfilled the role that Israel was to have fully and completely for us. In Isaiah 41 verse 10, it says that Israel is a servant and Jacob was chosen. So whilst they were still chosen, whilst their tasks were still given, and whilst it's very easy to accept that they didn't really accomplish it, Jesus came as a Jew, did he not? He came as a descendant of David. He came as one who still had the calling and who had the task, the task that was to bring light to the world. Isaiah 41 verse 14 says something very important that we should never forget. God speaking, it says, I myself will help you. I am your redeemer. The world needed a redeemer. These people in captivity needed a redeemer. We need a redeemer. And it was Jesus the servant who came to redeem us. And this returns us to Matthew 12. So let's read from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Look at my servant, whom I strengthened. He is my chosen one, who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even distant lands beyond the sea will wait for his instruction. God the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks the earth. And it is he who says, I the Lord have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you. I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you will be a light to guide the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind. You will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in dark dungeons. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share praise with carved idols. Everything I prophesied has come true, and now I will prophesy again. I will tell you the future before it happens. What Jesus did was he took the eschatological, eschatological future and brought it into our present. We do have a hope. We have a hope in Christ. And to these people who are hearing these words, hope stirred in their heart. Hope came as a comforting voice. Hope came as a very present and physical reality. And that's the same for us today. I, I, I want you to be encouraged that God wants to tenderly speak to you. God's desire is to comfort you. Whether the issue is that you feel like you've messed up and you've missed it and you feel like you're rejected and you feel like there's, there's no place for you anymore. 
whether you feel like that, yeah, I have sinned and I have done these wrong things and there's really no hope, whether you feel like you've reached the end of your strength and you really don't have much to offer, whether you know that you just struggle with repetitive sin, whether you're aware that your life is so busy and you have no time for God at all, whatever your circumstance is, whatever your future concern is, whether it's your children and your family, whether it's fear of corona or some illness that you're grappling with, whatever it is, whatever it is, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our hope and our future. And so my prayer is that we would hear his comfort this morning, that we would be comforted by him. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, help us to sing a new song to you. Lord, I pray that our response from the comfort that we have in you would be to sing a new song. Lord, I pray that we would not leave today without being refreshed by your comfort, without being refreshed by your tender words, without being refreshed by your great love for us that caused you to become the servant who would give his life. Lord, I thank you that you said, I myself will help them. Lord, we were weak and we had no hope. Yet, Lord, you broke into our world and our place Lord, you became like us and you died. So that, Lord, we who believe in you may not perish but have eternal life. That, Lord, we who believe in you might dwell in your presence. That we who believe in you, Lord, might have a new song. A new song. Lord, I pray that we as a church, that people sitting here today, would leave this place with a new song. A new song. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. Please join us for a cup of tea and coffee. Um, and if you have any questions about Corona or anything like that, I would be happy to answer them uh, and speak to you. Let's just do our best and love one another. Amen. God bless you. And may you have a new song.